Welcome to the Baptist Pulpit. This podcast is designed to introduce to the audience Baptist preachers, both living currently in America or across the world, and also to introduce classic speakers, men of the past. There were Baptist preachers that have inspired men like myself for years to preach the Word of God. And they also, through their preaching, highlight Baptistic principles. Thank you for tuning in to Baptist Pulpit. Pray that you enjoy the podcast today. We are featuring a classic preacher of the past, Dr. Robert Green Lee, or known as R.G. Lee. W.A. Chriswell, pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, said of R.G. Lee, one time in each century and once in a while in each generation, God raises up a true prophet, a prince of preachers. In this century and in this generation, that favored evangel is the world-famous pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. In November 11th, or on November 11th, 1886, in a three-room log cabin in York County, South Carolina, the fifth child was born to sharecroppers David Ayers Lee and Sarah Bennett Lee. They said, praise God, glory be, the good Lord has done sent a preacher to this here house. And with those words, an old midwife virtually danced around the small room that was warmed and faintly illuminated by a flickering fire and proclaimed the birth of R.G. Lee. And a preacher had been born. R.G. Lee's parents were Christians, but they were strict and raised their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But as a boy, he grew up in near poverty. He worked hard with his dad and siblings, raising cotton, corn, wheat, and watermelons. In those days following the Civil War, the Lee family found it necessary to eke out a living tilling the same rocky soil as the former slaves who had lived in their district. And so, the Lee family income in those years was maybe $300 in a good productive year. At age 12, Robert Lee got under conviction of his sinful nature after hearing a sermon at First Baptist Church of Fort Mill, South Carolina on what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ. And that day, he got saved. Robert E. Lee would remain on the farm until he was 21 years old, but his eagerness to learn never subsided and his passion to preach ever grew. When he was 21, he borrowed $250 from the local bank and went to work on the new Panama Canal to earn money for his education. Upon returning home, he enrolled at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. There, he uh, learned and he became proficient in Latin. He was offered the chair of Latin at Furman, but his desire to become a pastor prompted him to decline the offer. After some, a few pastorates, he settled in and became the pastor of First Baptist Church in New Orleans. His pastorate in New Orleans lasted about three and a half years. Then he went to a couple of other different pastorates, and then he settled in Bellevue. Peerless pulpiteer, as he is called, went to Bellevue in 1927 and remained there until 1960, a 33-year ministry. During his years in Memphis, he was offered several pastorates, even offered uh, to be the presidents of different theological seminaries and universities. But he landed there in Bellevue, and there he finished his ministry. Pray that you enjoy this famous classic sermon, Payday Someday, by R.G. Lee. I introduce you Naboth. Naboth was a citizen of the little town of Jezreel. He was a good man. He abhorred that which is evil. He claved to that which is good. This good man had a little vineyard which was close by, a palace to the king. This vineyard had come to him as a cherished inheritance from his forefathers. Because of this, all of it was very dear to his heart. 
I introduce you Ahab, the vile human toad who squatted on the throne of the nation. He had command of a nation's wealth and a nation's army, but no command of his lusts and appetites. He wore fine clothes, but had underneath these clothes a wicked heart. He ate good food, but he had a starved soul. He lived in palaces, yet he tormented himself for one little bit of land more. He was a king with a crown, a throne, a scepter, a great army, and a fat treasury. Yet he lived nearly all of his life under the thumb of a wicked woman. The Bible says this to us about him. It was not like unto Ahab the son of Amri, who sold himself to wake wickedness in the sight of the Lord, and he did abominably in falling after the idolatries of the Amorites. I introduce you Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Tyre, the wife of Ahab, king of Israel. Infinitely more daring and reckless was she in her wickedness than was her wicked husband. She was a devout worshiper of Baal and hated everybody who did not worship her pagan god. She had all the beauty and all the brazen lewdness of Cleopatra, queen of Egypt, all the subtle scheming of Lady Macbeth, all the cruelty of a Catherine of Russia, and she and her maidens engaged in lust worship unto Ashtoreth in scenes of most forbidding vulgarity. She was a beautiful adder coiled upon the throne of the nation. I introduced you Elijah, God's preacher. He wore rough clothes, but he had underneath these clothes a righteous and courageous heart. He ate birds, food, and widows fare, but was a great physical and spiritual athlete. He was God's strong wall that stood out against the rising tides of the wickedness of his day. He was a seer who saw clearly, a great heart who felt deeply, a hero who died valiantly, and God took him home to heaven without the touch of the death dew upon his brow. And with the introduction of these four characters, Naboth, the devout Jezreelite, Ahab, the vile human toad who occupied the throne, Jezebel, the beautiful adder, coiled beside the toad, and Elijah, God's preacher, I bring you as best I can tonight, please, with the help of your prayer. The tragedy of payday someday as we find it in this book, 1 Kings, the 21st chapter, and 2 Kings, the 9th chapter. And the first scene in this tragedy is a real estate request. Ahab the king said unto Naboth, Let me have thy vineyard for a garden of herbs, because it is close by my palace, and I will give thee its worth in money, or if it please thee, I'll give thee a better vineyard. Thus far Ahab is perfectly within his rights. He had no intention of cheating Naboth out of his vineyard, of killing him to get it. Honestly, did he, did he offer him its worth in money or better vineyard, and under ordinary circumstances we might expect Naboth to put away any sentimental attachment which he had for his vineyard that he might please the king of his nation. But Ahab forgot, if he had ever known it, God's commandment, whereby every tribe received its inheritance and every family its lot from God with this commandment, the land shall not be sold forever, the land is mine, saith the Lord. And so, standing upon the commandment of God, and with true-hearted loyalty to God, and preferring the duty which he owed to God to any danger which might come from man, Naboth said, God forbid it me that I should let thee have my vineyard. He believed that he held that land in fee simple from God. Besides this, many tender memories of his childhood were tangled in those vines. His father, sleeping now in some obscure grave, had loved that vineyard and worked it. His mother, sleeping in some dust-stained shroud, had worked in that vineyard and had loved it. And whenever Naboth thought of this little vineyard so sanctified by sweet and holy memories, so rich in prayer and fellowship, coming the hands of Ahab and Jezebel, his soul rose in quick and righteous revulsion under the courage of a bird that dares a stormy sea. He said, God forbid it me that I should let thee have my vineyard. The second scene is the pouting king. Naboth's refusal took all the spokes out of the wheels of Ahab's desires. His refusal was a strong barrier against which the stream of Ahab's desire dashed and was turned into a sullen pool of sulks. There angry he went to his house in the daytime and went to bed and turned his face to the wall and would not eat. Look at the king there. 
whining like a whipped hound, pouting like a spoiled child that has been denied one trinket in the midst of a thousand toys. And when his servants brought in his food, he drove them from his presence as though they had carried in garbage. What an ancient portrait we have here of great talents and abilities prostituted to the service of Satan and withheld in the service of God. Look at the king here, uh, made captive by corporal mopishness, made prisoner by private pouts. Yes, look at this old whale, waller and spout about because he's denied men of food. Listen to this old eagle shriek because he's denied the crumbs that sparrows eat. Listen to this old lion roar for a little bit of cheese and get the ancient portrait of men and women, boys and girls, as well as the portrait of, of Ahab in the olden days and the portrait of men and women today who have diamond and ruby abilities who was no more a god to his churches and a punctured Japanese nickel in a Chinese bazaar. Yes, think of the men and women today who have incandescent light powers and making no more light for Christ in a smoky lantern on a stormy night. Yes, and listen to this overfed bull, bellow for a little bit of grass outside his own vast pasture lands, and get a duplicate of that portrait in men and women today who withhold our trust, our love, our service, and our sacrifice in our bodies from Christ Jesus, who bore our sins in his own body on the cross. The third scene in this tragedy is a wicked wife, Jezebel. We do not know all that the servants said to her when they went back to the dining room and told her that the king was lying there in bed with his face turned to the wall and would not eat. And we do not know anything which she said to the servants, but we do know something which she said to Ahab when trippingly, like a gay dancer, she went running in the king's room, found him lying there in bed with his face turned to the wall, his lips swollen with newly smoking, his eyes burning with devilish anger fire, and his wicked heart stubborn in disobedience to the commandment of God. And as is a custom with women until this day, I suppose she put her hand on his forehead to see if he had temperature. He had temperature, he was set on fire of hell. And first in a voice of sweet solicitation, she sought the reason of his anger, and in my inelegant translation of her words, she said, what's the matter with you, big boy? Why is thy face so sad, and why dost thou not eat? No, Rahab, with his face still turned to the wall, with his mouth filled with grouches, said, Because I said unto Naboth, Let me have thy vineyard for a garden of us, because it is close by my palace, and I'll give this worth in money. If it please thee, I'll give thee a better vineyard for it. And he said to me, I will not let thee have my vineyard. And every word he said, said stung like a whip upon a naked back. This wicked woman who never had any regard for the welfare of anybody who loved God. You can hear her devilish laugh ring throughout the palace halls like the cackle of a wild fowl that has returned and found a serpent in its nest. And then with her sharp, wicked tongue, she began to prod her husband. This gay, gaudy guinea of the devil strutted up and down beside the king's couch and derided him as a buffoon and as a coward. And his haunted-like sting, and wolf-mouth fierceness, and serpent-mouth hiss, in the teasing taunts she herded him for his scrupulous timidity. And then with more noise and wisdom in her words, she said, Aren't you the king? Can you not command and have it done? Can you not seize and take, arise, eat, be happy? I'll get thee, Naboth's vineyard. He had knew her well enough to know she'd do her wicked worst to keep her evil promise. So like an old turtle has been asleep in the cold winter's mud and the warm sunshine warms the mud, he began slowly to crawl out of the slime of his sulks. Jezebel no doubt tickled him on the chin with her bejeweled fingers and said, That's right. Now laugh. Now be happy. I'll get thee the vineyard of neighbor. Which brings us to ask this question. Who can so degrade a man as a woman of unworthy tendencies? And who can so elevate a man as a woman of noble purposes? But back of the statement, there was none like unto Ahab, the son of Amri, who sold himself to wake wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And back of the statement, that he did abominably and falling at the idolaters of his day, is this statement, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. She was a polluted reservoir at which the streams of his own iniquity found mighty increase. She was the devil's grindstone on which he sharpened his wicked weapons. Yes, who can so degrade a man? 
as a woman of unworthy purposes. You can read this blessed word of God all you will. You can search the pages of history all you please, and you'll find that the spiritual life of no nation, no country, no community, no town, no village, no home, no school, no church ever rises in a higher than the spiritual life of women. And when women fag morally and spiritually, men sag morally and spiritually. And when women slump morally and spiritually, men slip and slide morally and spiritually. That's the testimony of this marvelous book. That's the testimony of thousands of pages of history. Who was it dominated the papacy in its most shameful days? Lucretia Borgia, a woman. Who was it tried to ruin Joseph, whom God put in Egypt to take famine fear from the heart of the nation? It was a woman, Potiphar's wife. Who was it told Job in the midst of his physical afflictions and financial calamities to curse God and kill himself? It was a woman, his own wife. Who was it suggested to Haman that he build a high gallows on which to hang Mordecai the Jew? was Zerish, a woman, his own wife. Who was it danced King Herod completely into hell? Herodias, a woman. Who was it was like a heavy chain around the neck of Governor Felix for life, for death, for time, for eternity? Drusilla, a woman. And on and on I might go, showing you from God's book this truth that some of the foulest plots that have ever been hatched out of the devil's incubators have been hatched out of them by eggs placed in them by women's hands. But while that is true, is also gloriously true to some of the most beautiful and spiritually fragrant flowers that blossom in God's kingdom gardens, some of the most luscious spiritual fruit that ripens in God's kingdom orchards, and some of the most potent streams that flow out to make gardens out of desert spots of the world are realities because of woman's chastity, faith, service, sacrifice, and devotion. But as for Rahab, this book tells us that it was Jezebel who stirred him up to greater wickedness than his own wicked mind could conceive or his own wicked hand could execute. The next scene in this tragedy is a message meaning murder. Jezebel got a piece of paper and a pen and wrote this letter. Listen to it carefully. To the elders and nobles of Jezreel, proclaim a fast. Set Naboth on high among the people. Have two men, sons of Belial, placed before him. Have them rise and say, Naboth, blaspheme God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. And she signed Ahab's name to that. And so that since writing has been known to man, no foul plot was ever written by woman's hand. Every drop of ink she used was fatal poison to be injected into Naboth's veins. Every line she wrote was a little rope, which united with other little ropes made a noose for Naboth's neck. And she had put that death warrant in what we call the envelope. She melted some wax at the mouth of a hot candle, and when that wax had fallen warm and soft upon the envelope, she asked Ahab for his ring, on which was a seal of the nation. He gave her his ring, and she sealed it with a king's seal, and back of that seal was all the authority of the throne. She gave that death warrant to the royal couriers and told them to take it down to Jezreel. And her purpose was to put Naboth out of the way by judicial murder rather than by private assassination. I do not know where Naboth was when that death warrant arrived in his little town. Maybe he and his wife have gone for a stroll. Maybe he's playing a game with his little sons. Maybe he's working in his vineyard. I do not know, but I do know this, that that night, when he ate supper with his family that night, when he slept with the wife of his bosom, he did not know that the hounds of death let loose from the kennels of hell by the bejeweled hands of a king's daughter and a king's wife were close upon his heels, ready to take his life. Now I can hear Naboth make his righteous and perhaps indignant protest when these men came down to his little house and made known to him the contents, only half the contents, of that message which meant murder. But his protests, whatever they were, availed nothing. They made known to him very firmly that on a certain day he would sit in the seat on high among the people, in the seat of the accused, wherever I could watch him, under suspicion and accusation that he had committed the crime which was about to bring punishment from God upon the people. The next scene in this tragedy is a fatal fast. The proclamation has gone out. People have gathered by the thousands, little children by the hundreds running here and there with their gay clothes laughing and playing. Here are these young men 
And young women, not knowing the evil portent of the day, glad for the day because it gave them the chance to speak the love of their hearts to each other. But the older people had the fears of their hearts written in the seriousness of their faces and sounding forth in the solemnity of the tones of their conversations because they trusted not Ahab and Jezebel when it came to anything like a religious fast observance in the name of Jehovah God. But the people who gathered and there's Naboth sitting on high among the people, wherever I could watch him on the suspicion and accusation that he's a guilty one who has done something which is about to bring punishment from God upon the community. As he sat there, in came these base sons of Belial and sat down close to where he was. There they are, the devil's hawks, ready to put their beaks into God's power. The devil's eagles ready to thrust their talons into God's dove. The devil's over wolves ready to tear to shreds God's noble stag. They sat there a little while and then they sprang to their feet and they cried aloud, Naboth blasphemed God! Naboth blasphemed the king! Then strong hands jerked him out of the seat of the queues, dragged him out to the throngs of people, while little children shrieked and women screamed and, and strong men stood horrified at what they knew was going to be done, which awful thing they were helpless to prevent. But these bloody butchers of the queen dragged Naboth out from among the people, out along the street, out through the gate to the town, and hurled his body down upon the ground and picked up the stones they had gathered for his killing and threw them at his head and threw them at his body and threw them and threw them and threw them until his head was crushed like an egg beneath a giant's heel. His feet and legs were broken all to pieces. His arms were shattered into fragments. His chest was all beaten in and bones stuck out from his body like ivory fingers from pots of red paint, blood splattered, brains scattered, and with convulsive jerks of his, of his body and groans coming from between his broken jaws in just a little bit, Naboth was dead. God's lily beaten to earth by the hailstones of hell. And these butchers of the bloody queen said, Now! That his sons may not inherit the vineyard, let's kill them. So they brought his little sons out and stoned them to death. Oh, quite brutally have they obeyed the bloody orders of that bloody queen. So they sent word back to somebody. To whom? They sent word back to Jezebel. Naboth is stoned and is dead. I do not know where she was when she got that news. Maybe she's out on the lawn, the palace lawns, watching, watching the fountain splash. Maybe she's out in the garden watching the royal gardener cut bouquets for the palace rooms. Maybe she's down out in the music hall listening to the king's orchestra play. I do not know, but I do know this, that when she received the news of Naboth's death, she received it with jubilant joy. She received it with devilish delight and went running to tell Ahab the good news. What did it matter to her that down yonder, 60-odd miles away, sat a little woman freshly wooded, what did it matter to her that down there, 60-odd miles away, sat a little mother washing the faces of her dead sons with her tears and beating the dogs back from their bodies? What did it matter to her that murder had been done, that God had been defied just so she and her husband had a little vineyard for a garden of herbs? And with an air of elation and victory, she went running into where the king was, found him lying there, sitting there, and she said, Arise, arise, get thee down to Jezreel and take possession. I told you I would get you Naboth's vineyard, and I got for nothing what you were going to give good money for. I got for nothing what you were going to give a better vineyard for. Rise, get thee down, take possession. Naboth is not alive. Naboth is dead. That last statement was true because the wicked plot conceived in her wicked mind and written out with her little white bejeweled queen's hand. The next scene in this tragedy is a visit to the vineyard. Ahab arose, gave orders to his royal wardrobe keeper to get out his king's clothes, had a little business trip to make, and he wanted to dress up for the occasion. While Ahab himself had had no direct part in the killing of Naboth, he was perfectly willing to receive the benefit of his dying, and he had not one word of censure or condemnation for that tragic plot that had culminated in such a murderous horror. So he gave orders out to the livery stables to Jehu and Bidkar, the king's charioteers, to hitch the king's horses to the king's chariot, tell the king's outriders to put on their gorgeous garments and saddle their horses and give him a cavalcade to come to him down to Jezreel. Jehu is a speed-breaking driver of his day. 
And when people heard chariot wheels whirling fast along the highways and other chariot wheels or heard horses galloping faster than other horses, they said, as old Jehu, he driveth furiously. He must have some kinfolks in America. And we remember that last year, 50,000 people were killed on our highways. But anyway, Jehu and Bidcar put the bridles and harness on the fine horses such as kings had in those days and such as they have had. They hitched them up to the king's chariot. The outriders put on that gorgeous garment, saddled our horses, and out from the livery stables came this cavalcade up to that great gorgeous ivory palace in Samaria, the runs of which I have walked over and the runs of which I have taken pictures of. Look at these wonderful horses. Hitched to the king's chariot there. Ears are moving, their eyes are bright and alert. They have a prance and their step and their lungs and muscles and hearts are ready for any pace their master Jesus here shall demand by word or by whip that they take. This cavalcade drove up to this gorgeous ivory palace with its solid ivory doors and solid ivory steps. And out from those solid ivory doors, down the solid ivory steps came the king, perhaps accompanied part of the way by the queen. Maybe she stopped and blew him a kiss or waved a hand at him. But Big Car opened the chariot door. The king stepped in. The outriders are ready. Jehu and his horses are ready. They're all ready. Maybe hissing his whip above the ears of his horses and certainly commanding them with his voice, Jehu sent the cavalcade away. There they go, away from this gorgeous ivory palace, out to the gates to the king's estate, on down the highway to Jezreel. Where is God? Where is God? Is he blind that he cannot see? Is he deaf and he cannot hear? Is he dumb that he cannot speak? Is he paralyzed that he cannot move? Where is God? Wait a minute. We shall find out. Over in the palace, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, get thee down to Jezreel. Over out in the wilderness, where he had no human voices at all, only hooting owls and howling wolves in the nighttime and the cackle of the kildees and the raucous call of the crows in the daytime out there in the wilderness, where, when the moon blossomed yonder in the ancient garden of the stars like a huge yellow jonquil, where the tall cedars in some breeze waved against that full moon like green plumes against the golden shield. Out there in the wilderness, God said to his preacher, Ahab, Elijah, go down and see Ahab at Jezreel. He's, he's to be there. And tell him this from me. I'm so glad that in this world, when the devil has his Ahab to whom he can say arise, God Almighty has his Elijah to whom he can say, Arise. And so, while uh, driven by the king's charioteer, Ahab rode to Jezreel, down the dusty highways, barefooted, walked Elijah to Jezreel. That brings us to this scene, the alarming appearance. He who drove these horses up to the gate to the little vineyard right there in the shadow of the gorgeous palace of the king, his summer palace. These horses pranced around a little bit. Well did they stand the furious pace that their master Jehu demanded that they take for those 50 miles. And so, big car opened the chariot door. Ahab stepped out of the chariot into the little vineyard, his vineyard now, the gift of his queen, right here in the shadow of his palace. Then the saw Saul and Naboth's footprints perhaps the smaller footprints of his wife and the still smaller footprints of his little sons. There are the rows of vines rustling in the sunlight, maybe rustling in a quiet breeze. He had walked in among these vines, planning how he's going to have them all pulled up and plant herbs there and eat those herbs up there in his big dining room in the palace. As he walks among these vines, planning that all out, what is it appears? Did some green-eyed tiger fix the pounce upon him and take his life? No, no tiger. Some fierce eagle swooping from the skies, threatening to pull his eyes from their sockets. No, no fierce eagle. Well, what is it then? As he walks among these vines, suddenly there's a shadow falls across in front of him. He whirls on his heels, and he finds himself face to face with Elijah, the preacher of the living God. He cowers in Elijah's presence, and his face turns pale. 
and his voice is hoarse like that of a hunted animal. And looking up at the preacher, he said, Hast thou found me, old man enemy? Hast thou found me? And old Elijah standing there, that old sheepskin mantle across his sun-kissed shoulders, that old leather girdle around his loins, and his eyes blaring like coals of fire in their sockets, and his voice is calm as an inland lake looked down upon the cowering, cowardly king and said, Ahab, hast thou killed and taken possession? Ahab, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, God sent me here to say to you that someday, where the dogs licked Naboth's blood, will the dogs lick thy blood, even thine. They have God sent me here to tell you that someday the dogs will eat Jezebel here by the ramparts of Jezreel. Having pronounced God's judgment sentence upon the guilty two, God's preacher walked out through the vines, out through the gate, out by Jehu and Bidcar and outriders whose eyes were wide with amazement, whose ears were tingling with God's judgment sentence as they had heard it passed upon their king and their queen. God said it! Did he mean it? Oh, was he joking? Oh, playing a prank on royalty. Well, we shall see as we consider this last scene. Payday, sir, did payday come as God said it would? Listen to me tonight, please. Listen to me. Payday someday is written in the Constitution of God's universe by God himself. For every nation and every individual that says no to Jesus who said yes to the cross for humanity. I say payday someday is written in the constitution of God's universe for every nation, every individual that's disobedient to God's commandments. No legislature man can enact it out. No educational system can pull it out or teach it out. No scientific power can eliminate it. No infidelity can revile it out. No atheism can laugh it out. Payday Sunday is written in the Constitution of God's universe. Oh, you can take God's name in vain if you will. But what does this book say about the payday for those who take God's name in vain? It says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for God will not hold him guiltless who take his name in vain. You can tell lies if you will, like many people do, forgetting that lying lips are an abomination unto God. But this book says that the payday for lies is this. Listen, all lies shall have their part in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone. You can drink your rotten booze if you will and go home and not know the keyhole, the door from the mouth of Mammoth Cave or your wife from a baboon or the railroad track from a clothesline. But this book says something about payday for the boozer. What does it say? It says wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever deceives thereby is a fool. At last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. That's a payday. You can live to flesh and sex if you will, like many do. But I have a book that talks about the works of the flesh and works of sex and God's payday for it. What does this book say? The works of the flesh are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, endings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. But what's the payday for that? God says, he that soweth to his flesh shall out of his flesh reap rotten flesh, corruption, carrying which buzzes love. Whatsoever man soweth, says this book, that shall he also reap. Payday someday is what God Almighty says. I was pastor of the First Baptist Church in New Orleans for some very blessed years. I had a little radio station all my own. Had a federal license to operate it. I used to get letters from a young man who signed himself the chief of the kangaroo court. Oh, what caustic, cruel, critical letters they did write me. Once in a while, I'd find a nice line in his letters, and if I did so, it was like finding a fragrant gardenia in a garbage can. And one day, a little nurse phoned me from the hospital and said, Dr. Lee, I know you're busy. 
I said, yes, ma'am, I'm always busy. I even wake my toes when I sleep. But I noticed that there wasn't any levity in her tones and in her words at all. She said, Dr. Lee, there's a young man down here who won't tell us his name. All he'll tell us is that he's the chief of the kangaroo court. He's going to die. Asked me to phone you and ask you if you'd come to see him because you're the only preacher in New Orleans he ever heard and he has something he wants to tell you. Will you come? I said, I will, and I did. That blessed little nurse took me in that great big chair award. Men on every cut in it. Took me up to one narrow bed on which was stretched this young fellow about 18 to 20 years of age, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, six-footer. And she said, this serves the chief of the kangaroo court. And I found myself looking down into the most beautiful eyes I've ever seen in all my life. As kind as I knew how to talk, I said, how to do? How to do? He snarled at me. And as kind as I could talk again, I said, is there anything I can do for you? No, nothing, 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 unless you throw my body out to the buzzards when I'm dead, if the buzzards are have it. And his voice lost much of its snarl. He said, I said to you, sir, because I want you to tell these men in here something for me. I'm the chief of the kangaroo court. I sent for you because I know you go up and down this country and talk to a lot of young people. I want you to tell them for me that the devil always pays in counterfeit money. I wish I could get these boys and girls and you young folks and all the rest of you tonight to believe me when I say, as I, after I have dealt with people as a preacher for years and years and years, I have found out that the devil's pearls are paste pearls, his diamonds are lustreless plastic, his nectar turns out to be hog swap. And if he eat his corn, he'll choke you with his cob. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. But who has the power to, to get any average American congregation to believe that today? Wish I had that power. I stayed with that young man like I've stayed with many people when they died. I stayed over two hours. I can see him now with his big hand reaching out, trying to grab mine like a drowning man, grabbing at a lifebelt. His eyes began to look like glass marbles. He gazed up at the ceiling, just kept gazing, as though he were hoping some rescue hand would reach down and take him out of the pit he had dig for himself. His body would jerk and jump and quiver and like it had a convulsive chill. After about two hours, a pile of black stuff spouted out of his mouth, barring a rumble in his throat and chest. Some of it got on my clothes and some on my hand. Foul stuff. The young man was dead. The tornado had died to a whisper and the whisper had died. The little nurse came running in excitement and said, oh, come here quickly, come here quickly. And I said, what do you want, my child? She said, I want to wash your hands meaning she wanted to wash them with a disinfectant. She took me back in a room, and she seemed to be talking to herself as much as she was to me as she washed my hands. She said, it's dangerous to touch him. Just to touch is danger. A touch, danger. Yet he was now the teenage area, if I'm able to judge of age. But the devil had paid him off in counterfeit money. Paid him off with paste pearls that had no value in life and death or time and eternity. Payday someday. No wonder Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote him what he did. Listen, this is the price I pay just for one riotous day. Years of regret and grief and sorrow without relief. Suffered I will, my friends, suffered until the end, until the grave shall give me release. Small was the thing I bought. Small was the thing at best. Small was the dead I thought, but oh God, the interest. This is the price I pay just for one riotous day, years of regret and grief. A young woman came to my office about eight years ago from Memphis State University. She sat in a chair across from my desk and she said, Dr. Lee, somebody's got to help me. Somebody's got to help me. She said, oh, Dr. Lee, if I had a million dollars in my lap, I'd give it away as quick as I could drop it to the floor if I could call back just two hours of my life. But I can't do it, can I? 
I said, no, dear, no river ever runs around and goes to its source. Young man wouldn't sit down in my office. Right here in Memphis, he'd inherited everything his father left him, which was quite a bit. He was successful as a businessman. He said to me, preacher, you don't have to preach to me to get me to believe that there's a hell hereafter. But I know there's a hell on earth because I've been walking up and down avenues of hell for 11 months. I said, oh, preacher, I'd give all I have, all my father left, and all I have, all I'd expect to have if I could call back two days and two nights of my life, but I can't do it. I said, no, son. Nobody can put an egg back when you step on it. Payday someday. This is the price I paid just for one riotous day. Years of regret and grief. All young people, listen to me tonight. Don't ever so live. Don't ever so yield your bodies to anybody or anything that you'd have to say, this is the price I paid just for one riotous day. Years of regret and grief. I love Louisiana. I preached all over that state. Jimmy Davis, who served eight years as governor of that state, started a Christian life under my preaching. And I love that lovely Louisiana. And down there we had a very beautiful young woman by the name of Tony Joe Henry. She had her lover, supposedly, but not a lover. She had her sweetheart, supposedly, but not a sweetheart. These supposed lovers would stretch out her long and spread out her long, beautiful hair and say, Oh, Tony Joe, your hair's so gorgeous. No girl has hair like you, Tony. And on some dance floor, some fellow would pull her up to him and look down her eyes and say, Oh, Tony, your eyes sparkle like the stars tonight and you dance so divinely, Tony. Oh, she had her lover supposedly, but not a lover, and one day she killed a man who begged her not to kill him. She was arrested, tried, found guilty of murder in the first degree, sentenced to die in an electric chair. Some people tried to get our governor to pardon. He said he had no ground for such. One morning, Tony Joe Henry is sitting on the edge of a cot in a cell, her beautiful hair is all shaven off, and I have a picture in my office of her sitting like that. Her little cloth slippers on her bare feet, she's bare-legged and has on a demonstrating waist, and she has a face in her hands looking down at the cement floor. Not a bit harder was than her heart was when she killed a man who begged her not to kill him. There was a click in the lock. The door opened. Two guards in uniform stood there, and one of them said, It's time to go, Tony Joe. It's time to go. She rose from the edge of her cot, walked down the hall with those two guards. There she goes, her last walk on earth. Nobody now to tell her she dances divinely. Nobody now to tell her her eyes sparkle like the stars. Nobody now to talk about her luxuriant, beautiful hair. Nobody now to tell her she dances divinely where she got that new perfume. Where are all her lovers? She stopped. And there's a chair there grinning at her like a skeleton from a closet. Times Picayune wrote this about it, and what he wrote I have on file in my office. Tony Joe Henry stopped, looked at the chair and said, Somehow, I knew all along God ran the whole show, but I tried to steal just one little act. The gods nudged along. She sat down in the chair, the strange throne the devil had gotten ready for her. They pulled the cloth slippers off her bare feet and put the soles of her little feet on the electrodes. The footstool to the throne, devil provided. They fastened little hands in with the palms on the electrodes. The carnation bracelets Satan had provided. They slipped the electrode over her head, her shaven head, the crown the devil had gotten ready for. They buckled her beautiful young body in with a heavy leather belt. A man pushed a lever, and that sudden surcharge of electricity hit her young body, and it jerked, and it quivered, and, and quivered, and convulsively twisted, and, and her eyes 
almost popped out of her head. And the smell of burnt flesh, the wisp of smoke come out from between her toes and between her fingers and from under the edges of the electrode on her head and circle toward the ceiling like little imps of hell laughing at the girl who laughed at the Bible and cursed preachers and laughed at churches and heard a sermon that you listen to tonight. Payday someday had come to Tony Joe and it'll come to you if you say no to Jesus who said yes to the cross. Well, somebody says, I, whatever happened to Ahab? Did Payday come to him? Well, three years went by. Three years and still he's a king. I think sometimes up there in the dining room in the palace, Jezebel poked a little fun at him when they had some of the herbs on the table. Here, here Ahab, help yourself to these herbs. All of them came out of the vineyard I got for you. Got for nothing. Oh, help yourself, Ahab. I, I thought all Elijah said the dogs are going to lick your blood. Ha, 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 ha. I thought he said the dogs are going to eat me. Ha, ha. Help yourself, Ahab. But I think in all those three years, only you have never heard a dog bark, he didn't jump. One day he had a this, the king Jehoshaphat of Judah, he gave Jehoshaphat a banquet. At the close of the banquet, he said, Jehoshaphat, you're the king of Judah, I'm the king of Israel, Ramoth, Gilead, out here is ours, and we're taking out of the hands of the Syrians. Will you go out with me and help me take it out of their hands? Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, said, yeah, yeah. My horses shall be as thy horses, my soldiers as thy soldiers. We will hurt thee. And so it was planned and decided. And the king of Syria found it out, and he called 30 of his best men to him. He said, now listen here, fellas. And this battle comes on. Don't you fight with the little. Don't you fight with the great. You just, you just get Ahab. That's all we want. Just Ahab. So the battle day came on. The king of Syria knew the battle plans just as Ahab and Jehoshaphat knew them. And on the day when the battle was to be, Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, when you go into battle, wear your king's clothes. But not I. I'm going to disguise myself. I'm going to put arm over my naked body. And over that armor, I'm going to put ordinary citizens' clothes, some blackness suit. But you go in in your king's clothes. I'm going in in disguise. And so it was. The battle came on. Seals crashing, seals crashing, arrows flying, spears thrown, war chariots rolling, men fighting. And, and over yonder is, is, is uh, these men of the king of Syria. And they see Jehoshaphat in his king's clothes and they grab him. When, when Jehoshaphat cried out, they said, Ah, oh, this is not Ahab. We want Ahab. Where is Ahab? And where was Ahab? Over oh, yonder in the chariot driven by Jehu. Oh, here's a man whose name we do not know. He did not even take aim. I call him the aimless, nameless bowman. The Bible says he drew a board of venture. That arrow of death went out over the heads of those fighting forces. It found the crevice in Ahab's armor, punched a jagged hole near his heart, through his body, and he fell over on the chariot rim and cried out and said, Jehu, Jehu. Turn your hand, Jehu. I'm wounded. Turn your hand and, and hold me up. And his heart was pumping out his blood until the bottom of his chariot was, was filled with his wicked blood. And they stayed him up on the chariot rim till he died. And then before they could wash his chariot out, get the blood out of it, the dogs came and licked up his blood according to the word of God spoken by Elijah the Tishbite saying, Someday the dogs will lick thy blood. God said it. And it was done. What about Jezebel? Twenty years went by. There she's a queen. Twenty years a long time. For anybody to teach school and never get any pay. Long time for nice to nice sick people to never get any pay. Twenty years a long time for a man to sell, run a store and never sell any goods. Twenty years is a long time for man to work a field and never gather a crop. Twenty years, and still she's a queen. Old Elijah had gone home to heaven without even dying. He succeeded by Elisha, marvelous servant of God. One day Elisha called a young preacher to him, and he said, Look here, my son, look here, my son. There's a little horn of oil. You take it, and you go down to Ramoth Gilead, to Satan Street, and to Satan House, 
You walk in that house and you'll find Jehu sitting among some soldiers and you call him into a room aside and, and shut the door and anointing the king of Israel and tell him what I tell you to tell him. And then you run. The young man did what Elisha said. He found the street, guided the Lord as he was. He found the house and walked in it. And there's Jehu sitting among some soldiers. He said, I'd like to speak with thee, sir. Jehu roughly answered, To which one of us do you want to speak? To thee, O captain. Jehu rose and followed the young man into rumor's side. He shut the door and opened a little horn of oil and poured it upon Jehu's head, maybe patted it gently with his fingertips and said with terrific significance and solemnity, I do hereby, by the word of the Lord, anoint thee king of Israel. The Lord has said that thy business is to blot out the house of Ahab, because the Lord hath sworn that the dog shall eat Jezebel. And the young man opened the door and did what Elisha told him to do. He ran and and Jehu went back to his soldiers, and they said, Is everything all right? What did that mad young fellow want? Jehu said, You know what he wanted. We do not. What did he want? And Jehu with an alvelation said, I am the king of Israel. And these soldiers arose and cried aloud, Jehu is king, and did other things that went along with such a royal announcement. And Jehu said, Come, we ride. Horses were hitched to chariots for some of them, and others saddled horses, and this cavalcade started on that long drive down the valley of Israel to Jezreel, up and down which valley I've gone a half dozen times. And at Jezreel was Jezebel, Joram, her son, and Ahaziah, his uncle. The watchman on the tower saw this cavalcade coming when it got in six or seven miles of Jezreel, no doubt. He called out to Joram, Jezebel's son, and said, there's a company coming. And Joram said, Son, out of the horseman, and ask him if his mission's peace. The horseman rode out, not knowing Jehu, not knowing that it was Jehu, and met Jehu and his cavalcade in the highway, and said, Is our mission peace? And Jehu said, Fall in you and ride with my company. And he did it. The watchman on the tower called out to Joram, Jezebel's son, and said, The horseman cometh not back. He rides with the company. And Joram said, Send out another horseman and ask him if his mission's peace. The second horseman rode out, not knowing Jehu, not knowing that it was Jehu, met him in the highway and cried aloud, Is thy mission peace? And Jehu said, Fall in you and ride with me. And the horseman did it, and the cavalcade kept coming toward Jezreel, and the watchman on the tower called out to Joram, Jezebel's son, and said, The second horseman cometh not back. He rides with the approaching company, and the one who leads that company drives furiously like Jehu, the son of Nimshah. And Joram said to Ahaziah, his uncle, Ah, we shall go meet Jehu. And horses were hitched up to a chariot for each one of these men, and they drove out through the gate to the little town and met Jehu right outside the gate, right near the ramparts of Jezreel. And Joram said, Jehu, is thy mission peace? Jehu, the new king, answered, How can there be peace as long as thy mother lives and her whoredoms and her witchcrafts exist? And Joram cried out to Ahaziah, his uncle, Treason, treason, and he pulled his horses around and whipped them up and whipped them up and tried to get back inside the protective walls of Jezreel. And when he got right opposite Naboth's vineyard, Jehu, who had been a skillful bowman for years, picked up a bow and arrow and shot an arrow through his body and and he, Joram fell out of the chair while the horses went on with it. When they drove up, Jehu stopped and said to Bidkar, Pick up his body and put it in the vineyard. Bidkar picked up the warm, bloody, but dead body of Joram, the son of Ahab and Jezebel, and put it in the vineyard they had gotten by killing Naboth. And the vineyard they got by shedding Naboth's blood is now stained with our own blood as it flowed in the veins of that son, Joram. Listen, God's payday train is coming in the station. All the powers of hell can't take out the steam or put on the brakes. And when Jezebel knew that it was Jehu, she tied her head, that painted her face, put in her earrings, put, in, put on her necklaces and her bracelets and her silks, and when Jehu drove in the gate, she looked out, 
from way up there on the upstairs window of the palace, and in haughty disdain she said to Jehu, Had you my peace who slew his master? And Jehu, looking up at this painted viper of the nation, said, Who is on my side? Who? And he saw some eunuchs at another one, and he said, Take her and throw her down. These men ran and put their strong man's fingers in a soft woman of flesh and picked her up, tired head and all, painted face and all, jewels and all, silks and all, and pitched out the window down to the street and down she came and her body broke and burst and some of the blood dashed on the legs of Jehu's horses and some of them, some of it on the walls of the town and he crawled her underfoot, that is, he drove his horses and chared over her and stopped and looked at her, hissing like a serpent in the fire in her death agonies, and he went in to eat. While he's eating, he suddenly stopped and said to some of his soldiers, Go out there and get that cursed woman and bury her, for she's a king's daughter. And these soldiers, in obedience to the command of thy new king, went out to pick up the body of Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Tyre, to bury it. When they got out on the streets, they were greeted by these yellow-eyed, mangy, lousy, dirty, hungry dogs of the back alleys in the countryside, and they had eaten her, all except her head, her hands, and her feet. God Almighty saw to it. The lousy, dirty, hungry dogs despised the feet that had walked in Baal's courts and then in Naboth's vineyard. God Almighty saw to it that the lousy, dirty, hungry dogs despised the brains that conceived the plot that took Naboth's life. God Almighty saw to it that the lousy, mangy, dirty, hungry dogs despised the hands that wrote the plot that took Naboth's life. And these soldiers looked at these dogs standing there, their stomachs swollen with their queen's flesh, their tongues licking some of her blood from their hairy mouths. And they looked at Jezebel's head and feet and hands, despised of the dogs. They went back to their new king and they said, We went to bury her, sir. But the dogs had eaten her, all except her head, her hands, and her feet. And Jehu, the new king, said with terrific significance and solemnity, This is the word of the Lord, spoken by Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Someday the dogs will eat Jezebel for the ramparts of Jezreel. God said it, and it was done. When I see Ahab dead on the chariot rim, see Jezebel eating of the dogs in the street, Twenty years after God said they'd eat her, three years after God said the dogs would lick Ahab's blood, I said that the judgments of God sometimes have leaden heels and travel very slowly, but they always have iron hands and they crush completely. I see them again, again, Ahab dead on the chariot rim. Jezebel eating of the dogs, her head and feet and hands, the spies of the dogs. And I say, O Ahab, O Jezebel, O hast thou hearkened to the commandments of God? Then had thy peace been like a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. And thine eternity, blessed one, with the hosts of heaven. The only way I know for anybody in this world, any nation in this world, to escape the sinner's payday and the sinner's hell beyond it is through Jesus Christ, who took the sinner's place on the cross and on that cross became for sinners all that God must judge that we through faith in him might become all that God cannot judge. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Pulpit. Second Timothy chapter 4 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We pray that through the challenging preaching of the word of God today, that you will be encouraged to stay faithful in preaching the word and hearing the word. Lester Roloff many years ago said, the world's greatest need is preaching preachers. Let's pray that in this day and this hour, we will stay faithful to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening to The Baptist Pulpit. <laughs>